Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. You're in for a treat today because we are talking with Laura G. She's an associate professor of economics at Tufts University. She has a PhD from the University of California at San Diego, a BA from Barnard College at Columbia University. Basically, she's super smart. Uh, but she's also very well-spoken and articulate, which is great for me because I don't understand half the stuff that she does in her research, but she unpacks it so nicely in some of her writing and today on the podcast for folks like me and hopefully folks like you. So today we talk about some of her areas of research that include the altruism budget. So is our charitable giving fixed or is it flexible? If we give now, are we less likely to give later? Some really interesting stuff uh, for the space. Uh, talk about matching funds and incentives and some different ways that you can kind of challenge and leverage matching funds. And then also briefly on this concept of the hired gun, something I knew really nothing about, but uh, came across in her research and I thought was pretty interesting. So we see, does it apply to charitable giving or maybe just how to make your coworkers arrive on time? But it's interesting either way. Talk a little bit about the growing generosity just overall before closing with what she's working on next, which is also really, really interesting. So incredibly bright woman, very generous to give us her time and uh, does a great job at making very complex things sound and make sense, uh, sound simple and make sense. So uh, I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope you do as well. Thank you as always for listening. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go I said welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Hi, Laura. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So we connected around the Science of Philanthropy Initiative. I believe you and some of your research on the altruism budget kind of came my way and was really interesting. And we connected and that's what we'll talk a little bit about. But I'd love to know, how did you get into this space? Why did you want to get into kind of uh, behavioral economics and specifically why philanthropy and giving? Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of different reasons into like how I got into thinking about philanthropy specifically. But let me take a step back and just sort of start with how I got into doing research, which was um, my first job out of college. I worked at a consulting firm that provides expert witnesses in court cases, which hmm. I didn't even know that was a job <laughs> until I got it. But it's like apparently right. a very large industry. Hmm. And part of so there were like a few different parts of my job. And one of them was creating doing the research portion for, for what this expert would say on the stand. And then the other part was to try to like keep this expert's credentials up to date. So I'd help that expert write papers, academic papers or books and help them design classes. And then, huh. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it was a pretty cool job, like right out of college. Yeah. And, um, and I really liked the part where I helped them write papers and help them design classes. And I really didn't like the part where I was creating testimony for court cases. <laughs> so, so then one day someone at the firm like turned to me and said, um, hey, you know, there's a job where all you do is write academic <laughs> papers and teach classes. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so then I, huh. they were like, yeah, you could just be a college professor. And I was like, oh, well, then clearly I should do that. So I uh, I went back and did some night classes while I was working and, and ended up getting a PhD in economics. So, so that <laughs> was how funny. I got to there. And then how did I end up working on philanthropy specifically was that I've, I've always really been interested in what economists call public goods, right? Mm. Um, 
and just sort of generally in an abstract way, that means I've always been interested in, question, in the question of how do societies um, provide goods that everyone can enjoy, but not everybody has to contribute to, hmm. right? And so an example might be disaster relief. Uh, so some people actively contribute to disaster relief by like giving to charities like the Red Cross, right? Mm -hmm. While others decline to donate to that type of organization. Yet, um, if you are, are affected by a disaster, everyone enjoys the same Red Cross benefits, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so uh, I've always just been really interested in seeing, like, first of mm. all, it's, you know, if you look at a traditional economics model, you would predict that the Red Cross would never get a dollar donated to them, right? Because <laughs> right. <laughs> it would just be like, oh, well, that's not good for that individual. So clearly they won't do it. And then, right. uh, so that's sort of, you know, the first thing is like, why do people give at all? And then secondarily, you know, knowing that people give, how can, how can we get them to give optimally to, to contributing the right amount to charities so that that, that, and to nonprofits and to public goods in general so that we get the right provision of them. And so that's, you know, a natural place to think about the provision of public goods, even abstract public goods in a real world setting is to think about charitable giving. So that's how I yeah. got into it. <laughs> Ooh, I mean, there, there's, there's a whole podcast right there because yeah, it's really right. interesting. For me. So I, I'm, a, I'm a born and raised Canadian who, ah. then went to, who went to school in the US. And so the the strength of philanthropy is like what I studied at the graduate level, like giving and charity. And we have less of that in Canada, but obviously we have a lot more social benefit and socialist policies. And yeah, you guys have so a lot this, more benefits that come. Yeah. Right. So seeing how those two things play out in different ways over the borders has been really interesting as I've learned more about philanthropy. Yeah. But then also the more that you study and, you know, very armchair economics, the, it's funny to see how many economists struggle with the idea of charity. Because mm -hmm. it doesn't compute with all the other models around social exchange and utility maximization. They're just kind of like, what the heck do we do with like charitable giving? You know, that's what's so interesting. That's why I'm glad people like you are trying to look into it because it's it like doesn't make sense with other theories or it's like, you know, counterintuitive. And it's just it seems so different than other uh, thinking in, in econ e economics, even though it's rooted in a lot of the same types of things. Right. Yep. Yep. So I think a lot of people who like myself included consider themselves a behavioral economist, it, it's because traditional models of economics predict zero charitable giving, like you said. Like, <laughs> right. it's just like, we're, it just blows our mind that anyone's giving to charity at all, let alone like <laughs> giving, you know, more than a dollar. Right. And, and so I think there's a large portion of behavioral economists who study why do people give to charity? Because, you know, we were, we went through this whole system, you know, multiple years of schooling where we were taught that it would never happen. And yet we look around and it's happening all the time. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and then uh, I want to shift to the altruism budget because mm -hmm. the thing that struck me that was so interesting is a lot of the research that, that is done and that you read and that you've done and others is very much a lot like how we fundraise, like one, one organization to one donor and we look at that interaction and then, you know, we got a little bit better about looking at maybe subsequent actions beyond just one gift, but maybe like downstream giving. But what, what y'all started looking at, and there's another uh, research paper was like, well, how does this affect giving in the future, but to other charities, right? Mm -hmm. Like does money now mean less money later mm -hmm. or does money to this charity mean no money for that charity? And mm -hmm. can you just unpack what the altruism budget concept is and then maybe how you went about this research? Cause I think it's really interesting. I would be happy to. So this is joint work with uh, Jonathan Meir, who's over at Texas A&M. And, um, you know, he and I have been talking about, you know, there's been all this great research done and, and, and also just work by individual nonprofits trying to maximize the amount of donations you'll get in one single campaign, 
right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of been, I think that's really important and a really good first step. But something else to consider is that you really want to know if people have an altruism budget that's fixed. So if I give now, that means I give less later or mm -hmm. an altruism budget that's flexible, right? Mm -hmm. That might expand. And you might have something where if you give now, you actually might be more interested in giving more later, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's not clear if altruism is substitutable or complementary to itself. Mm -hmm. And you could think about that. So Jonathan and I got commissioned to do a chapter for the nonprofit sector, a handbook, which is going to be out, I think, later this year. Uh, so in 2020 from Stanford University Press. So I totally suggest we, we, you know, there's a lot of great chapters in there. Ours is just one of them, but people take a look at it. And in our chapter, what we really want to, to, to tackle was, you know, given that we've done all this research, the question is, is the altruism budget fixed or flexible? And mm -hmm. that could happen over a few different ways. So like you said, it could be if you induce somebody to give to your charity right now, does that mean that they might give less later to your charity in the future? It could also be if you induce somebody to give money to your charity right now, might they give maybe less volunteering at some mm. other, you know, might they volunteer less or, and then it also, another way it could be if they give more to your charity right now, might they give less to some other charity, right? Mm. So all those things would be ways that when we see this increase in charitable giving from a single campaign or a single piece of research, we may not actually be helping because all we've done is just reallocate who is getting that money <laughs> rather than expanding the actual size of the pie, right? Which yeah. is what we keep thinking we're doing implicitly, but we're not sure. So Jonathan and I went on this adventure of reading everything we could in this area, which took a long time. <laughs> and I'm sure we didn't remember everything. So if you have a piece of research, if someone's <laughs> listening and you look in the chap chapter handbook and it's not there, let us know. We're happily try to like slip it in if we can before they, uh, they print the thing. Um, the, uh, but here's what I can say. So we kind of looked at three different aspects of how al the altruism budget could be fixed. It could be fixed in the way that you give. So like money versus time, versus, you know, maybe buying a, you know, a membership or something, right? There's lots of different ways you can give. Uh, so on that question, there's actually very little research out there. And most of it's about time versus giving in time versus giving mm -hmm. in money. So volunteering versus monetary donations. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, after reading a lot of papers on this, it just seems like it's, it's hard to answer that question. Mm. And the reason I think it's really hard to answer that question is there's not good data out there about following one person all of the time and all of their charitable giving actions, right? Mm -hmm. What you really do observe, you know, the best data we have right now is, is from surveys about people asking them, did you give to charity this year? How much? And also, did you volunteer? But it doesn't yeah. tell us where you gave or who you gave to. So, and it's only for one point in time for one person. So that question, I think, is still very hard to say. Yeah. And um, even some of the, sorry, just to cut in, even yeah. some of the research that we have, because it's a well-known or well-cited thing for fundraisers is like, hey, you know, get people to volunteer because those who volunteer give more. And that's often proved within an organization. But even within that, there's some like, is it the chicken or the egg? Or is there just like, those are just naturally really generous people, full stop. Yep. So yeah, they give more time and also they give more money. So it's also kind of like, is it volunteering that leads to giving or are they just more generous, period? You know, right. it's are they, really is, hard are to there, parse Are both those things caused by the same underlying generosity right. that person Right, has. exactly. That's Exactly. Really and we have some experiments out there that people have run where they have induced more of like giving in one form to see if another form changes. But, right. you know, it's still very specific to that setting. And, right. and, and so the evidence is really still kind of mixed on that. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So that's, and that's then, one of So them. then one of the other components we were looking at is, you know, um, 
does giving now to a specific charity um, mean that you give less to some other charities? Mm-hmm. And here, a lot of times what people will do is look at natural disasters. So they'll look mm-hmm. at, you know, if there's um, or, or, you know, very successful campaigns. So uh, the ice bucket challenge, you know, a few years ago was a very, mm-hmm. very popular campaign. And then they'll look at and see if that changed the total amount of giving in the year. Uh, versus previous years and the trend that was going on. And here, I still have to say that the evidence is really mixed, right? And it, mm-hmm. it, once again, it's just because we we don't have good data on everybody's giving over all of the charities that they gave. And for all we know, they also gave informally, right? Like maybe they, they, they you know, helped out a friend with babysitting, you know, yeah. it's just hard to say, right? Yeah. Well, especially now, uh, GoFundMes and these types of things, yeah. like non-tracked, quote unquote, charitable giving, could at one level be super charitable, like your friend's house burns down and you give him 50 bucks and it never shows up on any of our ways to track charitable giving, but it's such a charitable act. So it's really complicated now more than ever too. So true. It's just really impossible to measure everything. And right. so it's hard to say. Right. Now, one thing that we, we did read up a lot on though, and, and it does seem like there's a good consensus in like all the papers that most of the papers we read. So I think it might be actually a, a true finding is that it doesn't really seem like if a campaign induces people to give now, that they end up giving less to that charity later, which is really mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also true for volunteering in some ways, insofar as um, they've done some research with blood donations too. Like if you induce someone to give blood mm. now because of a you know special drive, it doesn't look like they end up giving less blood later. So, so you know, this is, this one seems kind of robust to the stuff we've seen. So if anything, you know, the one piece of after doing all this reading and kind of coming up with this very unsatisfying, wishy-washy answer <laughs> of like, well, we still don't know. Um, the one piece of evidence that does seem kind of true is that giving now doesn't seem to reduce giving later, which makes me think that that one piece of evidence is telling me that altruism budgets for individuals are actually flexible, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that they have the chance of being expanded. And, and so... That gives me a lot of hope, personally. <laughs> yeah, and I think it gives those of us who work in the field uh, and work hand-in-hand with nonprofits fundraising, it gives us a lot of hope as well. Um, and it's more evidence because we have a lot of models, and this is what's really interesting, like the fundraising models um, will always highlight people that are most likely to give, and the people mm-hmm. that are most likely to give are people who have recently given. Mm-hmm. And so then there is a little chicken egg in here as well, where it's like, well, we keep asking the people who give to give again, and then they give again, and then our models say, oh, they're more likely to give again. And it's like, mm-hmm. we keep. So what happens is, and we look, when you look at like Giving USA reports or more sectoral, like giving continues to grow, but it's relatively flat, and the number of people contributing is actually mm-hmm. decreasing. And part of that to me is what our models are telling us. They're telling us to raise more and more funds from a smaller and smaller pool of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so like that is a little bit in there, but then the flip side is this kind of like a lot of small organizations go, let's wait, let's not ask them right now because, you know, we want them to give in November. We don't want them to give now, or, you know, they will only ask them once a year because we don't want to take up like they, um, you don't want donor fatigue. Yeah. They don't want donor fatigue or they assume that there is a fixed, you know, altruism budget. Yeah. And so to, to see that, like, that may not be true. And also like, who knows if they're going to give to you in November or not? Why not try to get them to give now and then also maybe try in, in November? Anyways, I thought it was just really interesting to see like a, a more meta analysis kind of back up a few points that we either have believed or want to believe or hope to believe where kind of giving begets giving. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, the, you know, I want to believe that to be true. And <laughs> the, there's a real mixed bag of evidence out there, but. The one thing is that maybe maybe over time it looks like it expands. So that's good. Yeah. Interesting. So what, 
Yeah. So what's what's like next in this area? Are you going to continue doing research? Is there a way to um, try to get more aggregate data from someone who maybe tracks individual donors across multiple charities? Um, or is this kind of like, hey, that's that's it. We're on to like other projects now. We've sunk a lot enough hours into this for now or or maybe not so much for you, but in this um, realm of looking at giving across charities, what do you think is next in the world of research? Well, I think that there's a couple of things. So I think one of the next steps is to look at um, charity aggregators. So websites like GoFundMe, actually, it's not a charity, but, you know, they have multiple campaigns running at any moment, at any point in time or, um, you know, other places like uh, Donors Choose or stuff like that, mm-hmm. where there's multiple campaigns. And Jonathan Muir actually has a paper on this where um, they do an experiment where they induce some of the campaigns to be more attractive, to be given funds than others, and then look at whether or not that affects the donations on that website. What I think the next step is, is to try to, to survey the people who were using that website hmm. at that time over a, maybe a longer period of time, over a couple of years around an experiment to see hmm. not only does the experiment change their donation behavior on that website on you know the day that the experiment's being run, but does it change their donation behavior on other websites that day? Does it change yeah. their donation behavior before, you know, a year later? Things right. like that. I think that's the next natural step. And we are, you know, trying to find a partner of an organization that has kind of multiple campaigns uh, who is willing to let us survey their their users because, mm. you know, and understandably so, like you said, these these charities and nonprofits, they don't want to fatigue their donor base with extra asks, and especially an ask that's, you know, from a couple of academics saying, Well, wouldn't it be good to know? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, and I think the other uh, two other interesting kind of related points of research. One, there was a study done this year on thanking and, Mm -hmm. you know, it like thousands and thousands of calls and came back like, you know, thanking your donors doesn't help. It's like the short. uh, Anya Samick's paper, right? Correct. Yeah. 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 And a lot of us in fundraising had huge issue with that research because it was a phone call that was made six to seven months later where Mm -hmm. all the strategy is you got to call them soon. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you wait so long, so it's like, no, thank you calls uh, may or may not work. In their case, thank you calls six months down the road didn't work. Mm-hmm. Right. And so uh, we can't be too prescriptive or overly simplistic based on a, a research finding to say what does or doesn't work. So in this case, the ask is massive. Someone could ask the donor and have a terrible ask, you know, like very yeah. vague. Mm-hmm. Um, no idea what the money's doing and be like, well, we asked them and they said no, but it's like how you ask is actually really, really critical. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a huge challenge for those of you in research is even if you can get some of the, the data points, you can't control the input. And maybe those are like one organization did a great job connecting with donors and ask, and the other organization did a crappy job. And then a little like taint the data. It's just, it's always interesting to me of how the inputs can affect the outputs. But if you're just looking at the outputs, it's really hard to like, how do you, you know, um, take that into account, right? No, I mean, and I, for me, um, you know, we might talk about this a little bit later, but I've run a few, uh, you know, I have some papers that, you know, um, promote this specific type of matching funds that you, way to, to activate matching funds. And I've tried those in a couple of different places. And some places they didn't work the same way that they did in others, right? And it's right. important to to get those findings out there um which i will say is not always easy to do because people don't always, people like the idea of something working and so mm-hmm. when you show them that it doesn't work at every single time the exact same way they they don't want to see that even though you know it it's important for us to know <laughs> yeah no i mean maybe let's let's jump into that yeah. um is 
talking specifically about matching because this is a case where um, there's tons of academic research. There's a lot of like field experiments. Uh, we've proven this multiple times. And yet oftentimes when we get a new client, we suggest running a matching campaign. The question is, does this really work? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we have to do it again and validate for them again that, you know, yes, this works. And that's normally just like the one-to-one match, which is like, you know, the basics. But what was really interesting um, through your research and a few other people's looking, well, how can we use maybe matching funds, you know, differently, not just in the classic one-to-one? Mm-hmm. Is it any better or any different? So can you unpack what uh, kind of you did for using matching funds and what you found? Sure. So I have two papers on this. Um, one is joint with Mike Shrek, and then another one is with um, Mike Shrek and uh, a graduate student of mine, well, she's not a graduate student anymore, uh, on Crete Singh. And so in the first one, I'll talk about that one because it's already published. Um, something that we had noticed, and this is true, you know, it's not us, we're not the first people to notice this, is that people get called to action when they feel pivotal to reaching a goal. Right. This is the whole idea of get out the vote campaigns and other things like that. You know, you 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 know, you see people more likely to vote when it's a close election versus a blowout. You mm-hmm. see people. Um, there's these really interesting experiments from back in the 60s and 70s, where they would have uh, somebody pretend to have a medical emergency, and if only one person's observing it, that person immediately jumps into action, doing you know CPR or calling 911. But right. if there's two or three people, everyone just stands there for a while, not knowing yeah. who is the pivotal person, right, mm-hmm. to 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 take action. Yeah. And so we were discussing this and saying, oh well, wouldn't it be great if we could use this sort of like feeling of being pivotal in a way to induce charitable giving? And one way we thought about doing that was to to take matching funds, which, as you've already alluded to, is a very popular thing that charities have access to. Often a third party donor will say, I want to give you this big amount of money, but I want to give it to you so that you can induce other people to give. The traditional way of using it is what you alluded to, which is a sort of dollar for dollar match where they say, oh, you know, this week, if you give ten dollars, it'll become twenty dollars because this third party will match it dollar for dollar. And that's actually, as you said, you know, seems to be pretty effective. So let's not pretend that that's not effective. But we were, we were saying, oh, let's think about other effective ways to use it. Mm-hmm. So what we suggested to our partner was, let's try to make someone feel pivotal to turning those matching funds on. Let's make it like mm-hmm. a team. Mm-hmm. And so what we did was we created these sort of giving teams. Uh, you don't really know who's on your team, but it's a group of 10 people who have all received the same donation ask via a letter in this case. Mm-hmm. And you're told if at least this many people in your group of 10 give, then the charity is going to get an extra $50. Mm-hmm. And what we thought was we weren't sure what the magic number was going to be, right? We're like, <laughs> right. oh, well, you know, it could be one, right? If you think yeah. no one else is going to give, then you know you're pivotal if the number is one. Yeah. Uh, however, if you think maybe this is a generous group, maybe the magic number is two, right? Oh, two people will give and, and, and uh, you know, one, of them, one other person will give and I'll be the other one. Or maybe it's three or four or five or six or maybe it's all the way up to 10. I don't know, right? Yeah. So. So we worked with a partner and we sent out, we did a randomized controlled experiment, meaning that we took their whole donor base for this campaign and divided it into groups. Some of them got a traditional just ask letter, mm-hmm. you know, just saying, please give now, no matching funds. Some of them got a dollar for dollar match, like you said, the more, you know, common thing. And then other ones got these team giving threshold matches where they said, you're in a group of 10 people. And if at least this many people give, you're going to turn those matching funds on. We're hoping mm-hmm. to make you feel pivotal by doing it. Mm-hmm. And of those numbers that we tried out, the one we found that was most effective was a, getting three out of 10 people in the group. And that actually yeah. doubled the number of people who gave compared to the no matching situation. Yeah. 
which is like, as you know, just a huge effect in the world of charitable giving. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that the, the two things that I pulled out, one was every matching treatment outperformed the control. Yep. Whether it was like pure match one, two or three. And every time I've seen a match study that also includes other incentives, I think that's important to point out is like some kind of incentive or extra reason to give always outperforms nothing almost every single time, whether it's time bound or goal bound or tangibility or like almost any incentive that, that we have uh, outperforms nothing. So that was interesting. But that was really surprising to me to see that the like the more challenging of all of them, like the hardest one to achieve was was the most inspiring but then if you step back it kind of makes sense right exactly. if donors right want to be the hero and like oh we need three people to do this i have to give you know it's like oh it kind of makes sense but it was so surprising right no totally and and i should just caveat that that not all of our differences that you just pointed out were, were statistically significant just have to be right. like the downer economist in that <laughs> way but um but you know you're right and, and i you know that that all of them did point wise you know look larger than than the no match version of it and to get at what you just said here, though, we we actually, I know you mentioned lab experiments earlier. What we did was we said, when we saw these results from the field, we were like, we think we know what's happening here. We think it's mm -hmm. that people feel pivotal when they need three people in the group and they don't feel pivotal when they only need maybe one, right? Mm. So we actually did a lab experiment version of it where we had students at Tufts come in and we gave them money for coming in. And then we said, oh, you can donate part of this to a charity. And then we also, and they did the same ex exact same thing that that our donors did in the real world. They were they were put in teams of ten and told that they had to you know reach a certain threshold to donate. Uh -huh. And then after they made that decision of to donate or not, we asked them, okay, how many other people did you think we're going to give? And so mm. when we when we you know you can't do that in the field because you're not going to get right. somebody to to be like, oh, please like send us a donation and your <laughs> beliefs about what was going to happen. Right. But in the lab, you can. And we found that indeed that as people felt more pivotal by their beliefs that they reported to us in this lab experiment, they were more likely to donate. So, so when we, they when they thought fewer other people would give, they were more likely to give. Yeah, when they thought that they were going to be the one person who was going to turn the donation on, oh, right, gotcha, gotcha. Then, then they were more likely to give. Yeah. 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 So, so, it's, so it's, it depended on how, how high the threshold was, right. right. As to, as whether or not that would turn on for them. Yeah. Well, and this is, this is what's so great about, um, you know, being able to combine different pieces uh, of research to try to come up with a more holistic view of why we think donors do what they do. And that's, that's what we're really trying to do is through, you know, other people research, our research experiments to try to triangulate uh, a more of a, a narrative around donors. Mm -hmm. And you could look at like goal proximity effect where people are more likely to give at the mm -hmm. end because they want to be the one to, exactly. you know, reach the goal. And that's a similar concept here. And the overarching concept and the word that you kept using that I think is so great is pivotal. Yep. Every single donor wants their donation to feel pivotal. Totally. So, right. So if it's yeah. like it's matching, well, then it'll be, you know, more. So that's more pivotal. Or if it's, you know, $50 does this real tangible thing. Well, I know exactly what my donation will do. So that's kind of. Yep. you know, a role of, of being pivotal. Or the other interesting thing is uh, Wikipedia publishes, you know, fundraising experiments that they do every year. Mm -hmm. And this last year, they talked about their negative social proof. So they use 99% of the people reading this won't give. Mm -hmm. and, and they've tested, they don't want to use that. Nope. But they've <laughs> tested it time and time and time again. And if every time they change it, or remove it, it under mm -hmm. it um, underperforms like this wins every single time. And I think it's this element of pivotalness. Like you read that and you're like, oh my gosh, like I have to give because nobody else is giving. I need to be that giving. 1%. Right, right, exactly. And yeah. then there's some like social status stuff in there, but it's just interesting that um, 
we often sell donors short maybe and be like, no, they, they want to be challenged. They want to feel mm-hmm. like they're so crucial, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how can we do that? And your experiment and research around matching is, you know, one of a, diff- a few different ways to do that. So nope, really, totally. Really and we are not certainly not the only ones to have thought about this. Like you alluded to, there's lots of research out there about how to turn on that feeling of being pivotal. And ours is just one method to try to do that. Yeah. Right. But there's the, the key point is donors have to be made pivotal. And the, the nice thing about the research that we do is then we go out and make donations to hundreds of nonprofits and like look at their messaging and look mm-hmm. at what the offer is. Mm-hmm. And we can say that by and large, you don't feel very pivotal when you just go online to a website mm-hmm. and go to make a donation. It's no, very much like, <laughs> you know, it's generic, it's vague, it's, it's, you just, you're giving into an empty bucket. You don't know where it's going. So to, to see like what works in the research world and then to see what nonprofits are often not doing is, is both good and sad. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, another piece of research that I came across that is just interesting and it has <laughs> very little application, or maybe you can tell me if it applies to charitable giving, but this concept of the hired gun, uh, mm-hmm. you just touch on that one briefly before we kind of move on to, to a conversation about generosity. Sure. Happy to do this. So, uh, this is joint work with, uh, Jim Andrioni and him and I were interested in more abstractly the provision of public goods, right? And just to recall, that's just the idea that, that you could have something where everyone can enjoy it, but not everybody has to contribute to it. And charitable giving and nonprofits are often an example of that in the real world. Mm-hmm. So one way to get people to, to, to be more likely to give in those situations are the ones we talked about already, making them feel pivotal, right? Things like that. Uh, but another way to get somebody to, to give is you could find them, right? So you could either give like a carrot or a stick, right? And so we've been mm-hmm. talking about the carrot portion of it, which is making them feel good, uh, but this, you could also find them. And, and I, actually, I think in charitable giving, we do have these sorts of fines. They're not technical fines. We don't you know, go to people and send them you know, a bill, but we do uh, get fines in the terms of social things every once in a while. Mm-hmm. So for instance, if you have a donor wall where you list everybody who donated uh, in your like, let's say graduating class or something like that, Right. Uh, there are names missing and there is a cost socially to not having your name up there. Right. 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 So we do see some forms of fines, but as you already pointed out, it's not as easy to implement in, you know, a single campaign or something like that. You're not going to, I don't think, I think it'd be very unpopular and, and not wise for a charity to say, we're going to, we're going to post a list of everyone who didn't <laughs> donate in this campaign. I think that's yeah. probably not a great, you know, idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this hired gun idea is, is the idea that, well, you know, you could find people a lot, but you don't want to do that, right? You know, we just generally don't want to to get rid of, you know, spend a lot of time taxing people or fining them for bad behavior. Mm-hmm. And so a hired gun would be, let's take a third party who will watch what everyone's doing and then just find them just enough so that they wish that they weren't the lowest contributor to the public mm-hmm. good. So in a charitable giving setting, that would be like, let's look at everybody's donations, find the lowest donor and make them just uncomfortable enough that they wish they were the second lowest donor. Right. And the cool thing that happens with this theoretically, and also in our experiments that we ran in a lab setting, not in a, in a practitioner setting, was the way that it works is sort of like a game of leapfrog, right? It's like a race to the top instead of a race to the bottom, because everyone says, oh, well, I don't want to be the lowest contributor anymore because I know I'm going to get that fine that I don't want. So I'll be the second lowest, but then everybody knows that. So everyone wants to be the third lowest or the fourth lowest or the fifth lowest. And it kind of just like jumps, leapfrogs up until everybody's giving the right amount for the public good to be there. Hmm. Uh, I've always been thinking about a cool way to try to implement the same thing with, you know, an actual, you know, 
not a charity, like, an, an, but it, it's, it's hard to think of the way to not, you know, you don't want to find your donors <laughs> for not yeah. giving, right? <laughs> yeah. The, the closest thing I could think of would be like, if you had a, the honor roll or, you know, crowdfunding mm-hmm. campaign where I guess if you contributed and were the smallest amount, somehow you were like pinned, you know, like, yeah, you know, like it's uh, like who's giving and then it's like current lowest donor and it's like your name or something. Yep. Um, Cause the reason why the hired gun works though, right. Is that other people know that that one person was fine. Like if you just find someone and they didn't the know it day, wouldn't work. And they didn't know, then it doesn't work. Yeah, you no, have exactly. to know it that, has that, to that be other that everybody right. knows that that could happen to them. And so you need, you need that. Exactly. The, the um, experiment that I read was more about like um, employee behavior, I think, or just oh, trying to yeah. like, you know, facilitate good behavior. And that's mm-hmm. what I thought. That's probably more, you know, instead of finding everyone who's late, you yep. find the person who's the latest. Exactly. Yep. And then, and then you do one fine, you make them the example. Yep. And then everyone else is like, oh crap, I can't be the latest one. Oh, right? that's a and perfect then everyone example. shows up on time. I don't know that paper. I want to see that paper. That sounds well, good. Well, I, I think I may just, maybe just made it up, but that's the concept, right? Okay. It's, yeah. No, that's totally the concept is like kind of making an example of one person. Everyone has to see it though. And everyone has right. to like understand that they don't want to be that person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in the context of like uh, employee workplace and human behavior, I thought it was like, oh, that's really, whether it's like working out at a gym, like you can see yep. how that could work in all these different areas. The application to charity would be really interesting, although I'm not exactly sure what it is, but yeah, we're still, we're um, still searching for the best way to do it. Yeah. So if you're looking to inspire, you know, employees, uh, maybe you just find the, the, the one bad apple and call them out. I mean, I think <laughs> that, that that happens all the time at my workplace. So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Informally. <laughs> Informally. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, I'm, I'm sure we could talk on and on and on about all different types of stuff, but uh, I want to be sensitive of your time. Um, so maybe like one or two last questions. One, a question that we ask a lot of people is just, you know, this podcast about generosity, your focus on the philanthropy space, just at a high level, like, how do you think we can grow, improve, and optimize generosity? Well, I mean, if I had a really clear directive for this, <laughs> I, would, I would not be, you know, doing what I'm doing. I would be telling people from the mountaintops. But, um, you know, my sort of intuition on this is, and, and I think this is really linked back to this idea of an altruism budget, is, is it that when people are induced to give more now to a specific place in a, you know, a specific way, does it make them give less later? I think this is a really important question. And I think Mm. getting better understanding of this will let us know how to grow, improve, and optimize generosity. So I I think one thing we can do is actually get better data on on just a few people. I mean, not a few, but, you know, maybe... a couple hundreds people of their right. whole giving profiles over over a long period of time. Yeah. I think that'll really tell us more about how we can really make sure we're increasing the pie when we do the things that we're doing to try to, you know, increase donations to one place. Yeah. No, I I think that that's a great answer and not one that a lot of people have articulated. Uh because again, we look at we've never had more data at our disposal. We've never had, you know, more quote unquote professionalization and sophistication and fundraising. People have never been so in theory generous. There's mm-hmm. never been more, you know, humans walking the planet. Mm-hmm. And yet it's in the United States and Canada, yep. uh, fewer people are giving to charities. So it's like, we're getting worse somehow in light of all this. And I think that's because we haven't done enough rigor to your point of really understanding, not just the one-to-one giving, but like, their whole giving profile, that would be really, really interesting yeah. to, to oh. understand. And then we could try to, you know, grow and optimize from there. But if exactly. we don't even understand it, what are we trying to improve or you yeah. know, optimize, right? Oh, totally. That's, that's really interesting. 
Well, uh, thank you so much for taking time and unpacking some of the, the research studies. I know when I go through the papers, I have to read them like eight times. And I'm like, I don't really know for sure if I understand. So it's great <laughs> to like just talk to you and have you explain it, which is awesome. Um, so what, well, what's we always next? want to make it more accessible. So, so, you know, you, if you, if, if people don't want to, um, to read the papers, just follow other, uh, follow economists on Twitter. Cause then they can only write like a, you know, a certain <laughs> right, number they, of characters. They're limited. Exactly. We're limited. And I think we're better when we're limited. So, <laughs> um, what's, what's next for you in, in terms of research or what's something that you're working on that you can talk about that's exciting or just kind of, yeah, what's next? Uh, so what's next for me? I'm super excited about. So we talked about trying to make people feel more pivotal, right? and the effect that that has on donations in a single camping. Uh, the other thing I think is really interesting and that could interact with that is knowing how many other people have donated, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and you get this, you know, you hear this terminology of, of people, of something going viral, of everybody doing it, right? And, um, and usually that's really framed as a really good thing, right? It's like, oh, more people are doing it, that encourages others to do it. But you could imagine there being a sort of push and pull between seeing everybody, let's say, donating to one cause, and then actually somebody feeling like they're less pivotal to the importance of that cause at the same time. So you yep. could see those two levers moving in opposite directions. So, so some new research that I'm working on right now hmm. with a couple of different partners is trying to figure out what matters more, feeling pivotal or whether or not something's popular. And then also what's the interaction of those two things? And, and, and does one kind of wipe out the, the other or can they actually you know, maybe be used together to even increase giving more in, a, in any single campaign? Yeah. Ooh, well, that'll be really interesting. I'm really excited um, about it. <laughs> yeah, no, because we, um, we've seen a lot more organizations use like most popular or social proof type figures. Yep. Yep. And, uh, I actually had someone on the podcast that did testing with, uh, the Sierra club mm -hmm. and they tested their way into social proof with numbers. And one of the questions was like, could that be demotivating? Right. If I'm just yeah. one of a hundred thousand people, like, yep. am I really making a difference? And he made an interesting point that it depends like for them, the environment, this massive, massive yeah. issue, right? You need a groundswell of tons of people and you feel mm -hmm. like in the face of the problem, mm -hmm. I'm still needed. Yeah. Whereas if it was like, you know, maybe we're just building a, like a little corner store down the street. Yeah. A GoFundMe already, campaign for somebody. Right. To and it's like, something. there's already a thousand people doing, you don't yep. need me. So there's, yeah. so that interaction point, like we know yeah. social proof in theory in a vacuum works and we know that, you know, pivotalness in, in a vacuum works, but the yep. interaction between the two would be really interesting. So. Yep. So that's what I'm on right now. So I'm very excited cool. about that work. Yeah. Cool. Well then uh, I will obviously follow the work and maybe we'll have you back on when that's uh, available. Um, speaking of your work, where can people find out more about you and the cool stuff you're up to? Oh yeah. So, um, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's at Laura K G. Uh, so last name is spelled G E E and you can follow me there. And I often will tweet about research that I'm working on or my two adorable children. Um, <laughs> but mostly about research and also not just my own, but other people's work. So it's a good way to learn about, you know, I've already talked about a couple of my co-authors but like you and probably a lot of the stuff that you guys have on on you know on the podcast that i've heard already i've i've you know retweeted out stuff like that so it's a good way cool. to follow and then uh you also got your own uh, website link we'll be able to to share that out too where yes people can and find the website stuff. is also available yep cool awesome well thank you so much again for a doing the work that you're doing it's it's really really valuable for us and i'm sure everyone else listening but also thanks for taking the time today. this was really fun thanks so much
Hi again, this is Brady, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to listen to all future episodes or maybe go back and listen to some of our past episodes, you can do so by going to generosityfreakshow.com, or you can search The Generosity Freak Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, pretty much wherever you listen to your pods. And uh, if you have any questions or a suggested guest, or maybe you yourself would like to come on the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at podcast at nextafter.com. That's podcast at nextafter.com. And if you want to find out more about this vision to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world and what we're doing at Next After in terms of research, resources, and training, you can find out more at nextafter.com. That's nextafter.com. Thank you very much for listening. And finally, I have to say thank you to Nathan Hill, our producer and mixologist. This would not be possible without him. So thank you, Nathan. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs>